Well, please keep uh, Philippians chapter 1 open as we come to study it. We're focusing this evening on the last few verses of the, of the chapter, verses 27 to 30. And our theme this evening is lives worthy of the gospel, or you could say citizens worthy of the gospel. I've never had the opportunity to walk into a British embassy in a foreign country I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but I would imagine it would be a very interesting experience if you were to walk into an embassy. In fact, the more foreign the country, the more different from our country, uh, the country that you're in, the, the, the starker, the stranger it would be to walk into a British embassy. Let's say, for example, you find yourself at the British embassy in Tokyo, in Japan, uh, you've, walked, uh, you've been walking around the streets of Tokyo, completely uh, perhaps different architecture from the buildings of our country, perhaps different fashion, different clothing, different signs, different languages being spoken and different languages on the signs all around you. And then you walk into the British embassy and that embassy is actually on British property, it's British soil and you would go in and you would begin to hear your own language being spoken. And you would see perhaps fashions more similar to our own and food more similar to what we eat uh, in Britain or in Ireland. That little embassy is a little slice of Britain in Japan. The city of Philippi was a little bit like that. It was a Roman city in a Greek area, a Greek region. Uh, The other towns and cities nearby to Philippi were Greek They spoke Greek, they had Greek gods, Greek culture. But Philippi was a little room away from Rome and the citizens were proud of it. It was a little colonial city. It was a city that uh, a lot of Roman soldiers would like to retire to and spend the rest of their life there. Even the architecture, the, the layout of the city of Philippi was based upon the layout of the city of Rome. And so the citizens of Philippi were very proud to be Roman citizens. But Paul is writing to a little group of Philippians within that city who are different again. He's writing to men and women and boys and girls whose citizenship was not just in Rome or in Philippi, but first and foremost in the kingdom of God. Citizens of the kingdom of God. Look what Paul says in verse 27. Only, he says, and what he means there is pay attention to this one thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And literally in the Greek, and in some ways this would perhaps be a better translation, Paul is saying only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Citizens of the gospel. Paul's reminding the Philippians that though they were perhaps very proud of their Roman citizenship and their Roman city, first and foremost, they were citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's that citizenship that should define their lives and be most important to them. We live in a part of the world where national identity is perhaps the primary identity of many, many people and we're still, after all these years, we, you know, arguments going on about the protocol and whether or not that takes away from our identity and so forth. And it's not wrong to 
to be thankful for and to cherish your national identity, be it British or Irish or anything else. But just as with the Philippians, Paul would remind us this evening, friends, that our primary identity is not British or Irish or any other ish. It is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And Paul is going to describe here to the Philippians how he expects citizens of that kingdom to stand out from the world that they find themselves in. And just notice before we get into that, what he says in verse 27, he says, Whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm and so forth. And so what he's saying there is that whether I get to be with you again or not, whether I'm present with you or not, this is how you're to live. Remember your citizenship. Shouldn't be dependent on whether Paul is there or not. He wants them to live as godly Philippians, citizens of another country, people of the gospel. So what does it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel or to be gospel citizens? Well, three things to notice from from Paul's words here about what it means to be gospel citizens. First of all, we notice this evening that citizens stand firm together. Gospel citizens stand firm together. In the second half of verse 27, Paul says that he wants to hear that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And our English translations, again, bring out the the military tone of Paul's words here quite well. Paul really has a battlefield in mind when he writes these words. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says there, I want you to know what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And I was saying that that word advance is also a military term. And I give you the picture of the tank and how a tank goes uh, just pushes forward and allows the troops to advance on the battlefield. And now Paul changes the picture somewhat, but it's still a military picture. He's saying, now that you have, now, considering the ground that you have arrived upon, considering the progress that you've made, stand firm. Don't give up your position. Don't give ground to your enemies. Don't retreat on the battlefield. Stand firm. I remember seeing a little book on my father's shelf when I was growing up with the title uh, of the book Stand Firm on the front cover. And uh, the, the title was at the bottom of the front cover and taking up most of the front cover was a big elephant just looking at you, not moving. Uh, and of course, it's pretty hard, I would imagine, to, to get an elephant to shift if it wants to stay put. And Paul says he wants, he wants the Philippians to, to plant their feet and to be standing firm and hold the line. Hold the line. This is a favourite expression of Paul. He uses those words stand firm in a few other places. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Galatians 5, 1, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. And so it's obviously an important, uh, it's an important aspect of our lives as believers, that we stand firm. And as always, friends, I want you to think about the people that Paul was saying this to. He's not writing to big, impressive-looking megachurches. 
You know, he's not writing to denominations with hundreds of years of history behind them. He's writing to relatively small groups of people surrounded by an entirely pagan and sometimes hostile culture. He's telling those people to stand firm. The members of the church in Philippi had likely come out of jobs or worship practices that had kept them separated from Jesus Christ. They had advanced away from those things. And having advanced to where they were, Paul didn't want them to now lose ground. He didn't want them to perhaps fall for some of the temptations that faced the church in those days to sort of mix in their Christian worship with some of the pagan worship. That was the attitude of many people across the Roman Empire that it didn't really matter which gods you worshipped as long as you gave the emperor his due. The Christians couldn't do that. Paul didn't want the, the, the sexual ethics or the, the ethics surrounding the preciousness of life or the business ethics of Philippi to become the ethics, the mindset of the believers in Philippi. He wanted these gospel, these kingdom citizens to stand firm. Remember at the very beginning of the letter, he calls them the saints who are at Philippi. And we thought about that word saints, that it means you're set apart, you're different. They're to stand firm. And he tells them how they can stand firm. And it's by sticking together. By sticking together. Verse 27 again. Look what he says. That I may hear that you are standing firm. Notice this. In one spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The implication is they won't stand firm if they try to stand firm all by themselves as individuals. Over the decades, Hollywood has been fond of making a particular type of action movie. It remains fairly popular even to this day. And it's the, you know, the typical one man against the world action movie, whether it's James Bond or Bruce Willis or Liam Neeson. One man manages to shoot and kill about 350 bad guys. And even though they're getting shot at the whole time, there's barely a scratch on them at the end of the movie. And what a hero. He's managed it all by himself. Of course, it's totally unrealistic. But Paul has no interest in sort of that lone ranger one man against the world mentality. He wants these Philippians to strive side by side together, united. And the word for striving there is where we get our English word athletic. And of course, you only need to watch the, the Six Nations rugby that's on at the minute to see what it means to strive side by side. You look at them lined up for the anthems at the beginning of the match, shoulder to shoulder. You look at the forwards getting ready for a scrum and they, they bind together and they seek to stand firm and hold their position. Paul in his day was probably thinking of the way that the Roman soldiers went out onto the battlefield. The Roman soldiers would have these full length body shields covering them from head to toe and they would stand and right side by side so that the shields were joined together making one big wall in front of the soldiers. And the next row behind that would put their shields on the top. 
And so you would advance and as the arrows rained down or the stones or whatever it was, they would stick in the shields or bounce off the shields and allow the soldiers to either hold their position or even to move forward. And that's how the church is to stand firm, friends, against the temptations and aggressions of the world. We do it in one spirit, in one mind, side by side. The danger with the English language when it comes to reading Paul's epistles is you see that word you and you assume it's singular because in English there's no, you know, it's the same spelling whether the word you is singular or plural. And I would encourage you as you're reading your Bibles, if you're reading the epistles, in most of them, not always, but in most of them, you should assume that the word you is plural. More often than not, it is. And that'll help us to get out of this sort of individualistic mindset that we fall into sometimes as Western Christians reading our Bibles. We are not Lone Ranger Christians. We're not supposed to be Lone Ranger Christians. We need one another. And so this is the first part of what it means to be gospel citizens. We stand our ground and we do it united together. And that's why if you're a member of this church, you have responsibilities as well as privileges how you behave the other six days of the week how you speak how we treat people what our priorities are it says something not just about you but about us about our church people around us should see in any one of us what is important to us the gospel of christ and obedience to his word and as a church we are to Strive together as gospel citizens. That means we're to help each other. When one of us is burdened with a worry or a grievance or a temptation, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to love one another. When we have opportunity, we're to meet together. We are to worship together. We are to draw our hearts and minds together to our great Saviour. When one of us is sick, we visit them. We Give meals and we pray and we show uh, consideration. When one of us is going through just a, a difficult time, we're exhausted. The responsibilities of life are wearing us down. We're, we're there to help. We're there to pray. We're there just to encourage. One writer says, A Christian sanctification cannot be reduced to an individual exercise. A Christian's struggles must be faced within the fellowship of the believing community. We cannot do it all ourselves. We'll see that actually, God willing, next week as we look at the story of Abram and Lot and the difficulties that Lot got himself into. We cannot do it all ourselves. Now, this is not to say, friends, that you have to share every struggle and every temptation with everyone else in the church. But we do need to learn to develop those relationships Yes, we, we have our family units, but even beyond our natural family to, to get to know one another in the church, to be uh, learning how we can be praying, how we can help each other to stand firm in our faith for the sake of the gospel. So that's the, the first aspect of life as gospel citizens, that we are to stand firm together. Second thing that Paul says about lives of, of gospel or kingdom citizens is that citizens aren't surprised and that we are a sign. 
Citizens aren't surprised, but we are a sign. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Look at verse 28. Having told the Philippians to stand firm together, Paul adds that they are to do so, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Notice, by the way, friends, Paul just assumes that the Philippians are going to have opponents. They're going to face people that disagree with them. In fact, they were probably already facing opposition. You remember how the church had first started in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy had arrived in Philippi. And Paul and Silas had ended up being beaten and put in prison for their preaching. Now, they ended up getting an apology for that because it turned out they were Roman citizens. And as I've been saying, Philippi was a city very proud to be Roman. And it's possible that many of the church members were Roman citizens and they perhaps wouldn't face physical violence for that very reason. But they were still going to have enemies and they were going to face threats and they were going to face opposition. As I've mentioned already, worship of the Roman emperor was... Uh, widespread at this time and it was mixed in with almost any other kind of worship that people indulged in. Caesar is Lord was the motto of Rome. And yet the message of the church was that Jesus, a Jewish man crucified by the Roman Empire, that he is Lord of all. That just wasn't going to fit with the beliefs of their city. And some of their fellow citizens might even think it a threat. And so whether it was state-sponsored, whether it was physical, whether it was more sort of verbal and social, the Philippians were going to suffer for their faith. But Paul tells them not to be surprised. And he says, and he tells them as well, don't be frightened. And he uses a word there in verse 28. It's the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. And it has the sense of a startled horse. Uh, Maybe you've seen a horse suddenly take fear or get a bit jumpy and it's up on its hind legs and it it needs to be settled down again. Paul says, don't be like that in the face of opposition. Don't be startled. Don't be surprised. Don't be frightened. And this is an important point for us to consider, friends, because for so long in the United Kingdom, uh, for for most of the lifetimes of many of you here this evening, we haven't faced serious opposition to the gospel, not on a sort of a national scale. And as we know very well, that situation is rapidly changing. And there's a danger that we would sort of be surprised and that we would be wasting energy being surprised by these new threats and and these new attempts to undermine the gospel in our country, whether it's initiatives in the workplace, whether it's the things being taught in our children's schools, whether it's national legislation. Friends, we're in the world. The world is opposed to the gospel. The world is in the dark. Paul says, don't be surprised. Don't be frightened by what's going on. Maybe you think, well, that's easy for Paul to say. Well, actually, it wasn't easy for Paul to say. Paul's a prisoner because of the opposition that he had faced. He was stoned. He was beaten He was whipped more than once. People tried to kill him. 
And he would have found that as painful. He did find that as painful as any of us would find it. In fact, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 19, he asks for the Ephesians to pray that he would have the boldness that he needed to, to keep on witnessing despite the opposition that he faced. He's already asked for the prayers of the Philippians for that as well in chapter 1, verse 19. So it wasn't easy for Paul to stand firm and to keep on preaching in the face of opposition. And it's not easy for us either, and it won't be easy if opposition to God's word keeps increasing. But Paul gives us the right perspective to deal with it. Look at verse 28 again. He says, verse 28, This is a clear sign to them, to your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. That maybe sounds a little bit strange at first, but what Paul's saying, friends, is that if you stand firm, if you hold your position, if you are ready for opposition when it comes, then that is, if you like, it's a, it's a reminder to you. It's, a, it's part of the proof of your genuine salvation. And it's also a warning sign to your enemies that if they don't repent, if they don't accept what you're saying, they will be destroyed. A sign, of course, points to what is still to come. Past a sign, it says, Dremore, five miles, and you know where you'll be in the next few minutes. Well, Paul's saying, friends, this is very important. Paul is saying that when the world sees Christians maintaining their faith, standing their ground, then even if the world mocks that and laughs at that, deep down, they are ashamed by that. And they are rebuked by that. Even if they don't repent. And if they refuse to repent. When they see our gospel witness. Then there is a judgment coming. And they will be destroyed. By that judgment. The faithful church. The faithful Christian witness. Has something the world sees. And knows that it lacks. And friends that is conviction. Certainty in the truth that we believe. And I've watched Christians, and, and maybe some of you have, have seen the likes of this as well. Um, you think of those B&B owners in England a few years ago, or even this week, uh, Graham Nichols from an organization called Affinity, which our own uh, denomination has representatives uh, are, are a part of Affinity. Uh, but Graham Nichols is a spokesperson for Affinity, and he was on TV this week talking about the whole matter of the uh, the same-sex blessings or unions or whatever it was in the Church of England. And you see Christians going on TV in, in those circumstances and you can see the disdain and you can see the, the hatred and distrust that is thinly veiled by the TV presenters who ask them questions. It was uh, Good Morning Britain host this week were quizzing Graham Nichols about his beliefs. And you can just see in their eyes the mockery and the disdain. But you can also tell that they are taken aback and they don't really know what to make of these Christians with whom they disagree about same-sex marriage or abortion or whatever it may be. And those TV personalities might continue to spit out thinly veiled insults or take pot shots of the Christian faith. But deep down, they and anyone else that you or I might speak to about the gospel, 
who reject the gospel, they know. They know that unimpressive looking, unpopular Christians have an assurance and a conviction that they don't have. And so, friends, Paul says, don't be frightened. Be fearless. Be fearless with your friends, your colleagues, your family members when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. We are not called, it's not in our power to convert anyone. Our role is simply to speak the truth, to stand upon the truth side by side for the sake of the gospel. And don't forget that you're citizens of a kingdom that is coming and which cannot be destroyed. And of course, this is why unity in the church is so important. That's why we need to make every effort, as Paul says here, here and elsewhere in his letters, to maintain the unity that we have. Because that's one of the things that undermines our witness and, uh, and will give our opponents further reason to reject the gospel. If they see disunity, if they see Christians not preaching the same message, not united together, not practicing what we preach. That's why we need to constantly pray for the unity of the local and the wider church. But nonetheless, friends, every single human being is born knowing that a judgment is coming. Eternity is on men's hearts, the Bible says. And when unbelievers see Christians persevering, striving, united, it's a sign to them of their coming judgment, of their need to stop opposing Christ and start following Christ. And maybe you're here this evening or listening in and you know that many of the people in this room have something that you don't have. You don't have conviction. You don't have faith. Well, dear friend, God is giving you a sign and God is giving you an opportunity. He's showing you through the witness of the people around you this evening or of other Christians that you know or of the preacher that you're listening to. God is telling you what you need. You need to be ready to face the judgment. You, you need to confess your sins. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus. And then you won't be destined for destruction, but for salvation. So gospel or kingdom citizens, they stand firm together. They, they stand side by side. Uh, gospel citizens also aren't surprised, aren't surprised by opposition. And we are a sign to unbelievers. And thirdly and finally, kingdom citizens suffer for their saviour's sake. Kingdom citizens suffer for their saviour's sake. Look at verse 29. Paul says, it has been granted to you. The word there for granted, it actually, it means to be given a gift, to be graciously given something. It could be used in other places to describe uh, receiving forgiveness or receiving the gift of faith. But notice in verse 29 here, friends, Paul says that we have received something that maybe doesn't sound so much like a gift. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says, you have been given the gift, the gift of suffering. Now, he's not so much talking here about an irritating headache on a Monday morning or a cough that takes weeks to shift. 
or even a more serious diagnosis from the doctor. Though, of course, any and all suffering, there is purpose in it. And God can be glorified through it and teach us things through it. But Paul is talking specifically here, friends, about suffering for the sake of the gospel. In other words, suffering as a direct result of our Christian witness. It's the type of suffering that Christians, Christian pastors experience today in China. Rounded up, some of them put in prison, separated from their congregations and families. It's the type of suffering that a Christian man in Iran experienced a few years ago when he and his sisters were brought under intense psychological torture to renounce their faith. And after being tortured, this Christian man, he, he testified to his fellow believers afterwards. He said that he had just decided that he would just say the words as ashamed as he felt. He just thought, I'll just say the words these people want me to say to bring this to an end. But when he opened his mouth, he found that the words that came out were just the opposite. He proclaimed his love for the Lord Jesus again. It's the type of suffering that bakers and B&B owners and teachers and protesters, protesters have experienced recently in the United Kingdom. Despised, sued, bullied, sacked for the sake of the gospel. But what does Paul say about it? He says... It has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you to suffer. It's not really a gift that we imagine ourselves queuing up to buy, is it? In fact, as I alluded to in my prayer earlier, it's suffering is something that we're sort of trained to think in our culture. There's nothing good can come from it. We, we want to avoid it at all costs. But friends, Paul is saying that if your Father in heaven sees fit to grant you the gift of suffering for the sake of the gospel, then we do need to see it as a gift. I remember hearing a fellow RP minister uh, telling this story about uh, John Wesley, the great itinerant evangelist. And Wesley was riding on his horse one day when he suddenly realized that he hadn't suffered for his preaching for three days. He was distraught. Three whole days. And he immediately got off his horse and down onto his knees and prayed for forgiveness in case he had sinned in some way or other and lost out on this suffering for the sake of the gospel. A few minutes later, a man across the road recognized Wesley, the preacher, and decided to throw a rock at his head. He missed, but Wesley immediately went on his way, reassured in his faith and rejoicing, giving thanks that God had answered his prayer. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that we are to go looking for trouble. We're not to be trying to deliberately provoke or anger people. There are some horribly embarrassing stories about professing Christians who are just going out of their way to offend at the moment. Some of you might know those stories that are in the headlines. We're not to be doing that. But should we find ourselves under pressure, rejected, put on the spot, perhaps even someday taken away in chains... Simply for living out our faith, we are not to think that it's any kind of disaster. It is a gift from God, something to be thankful for. Why? Because if your suffering is for Jesus and for his gospel, friends, you will know a special intimacy with Christ and a greater appreciation of Christ 
than we would experience had we not suffered at all. When we suffer simply for being faithful, we are experiencing just a little bit of what Christ went through so that we could be saved. He who went to the cross, he who was despised and rejected, a crown of thorns pushed upon his head, spat upon, mocked. There was no one side by side with Christ when he went to the cross. He had to do it all by himself. And when we suffer, Christians will testify to a greater experience of love for Christ and fellowship with Christ and thanksgiving for Christ. Acts 5.41 tells us that when Peter and John and the other apostles first encountered persecution for their preaching, they were beaten and threatened by their Jewish authorities. It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There's Peter, who had once denied Christ, who had done what we're all tempted to do and taken the easier course. And when someone said, were you with that Galilean? Were you with Jesus? He said, no, 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 no. Even when a little girl asked him, he was too scared to tell her that he had been with Jesus. Well, what did that easier course of action lead to? Bitter tears of regret for Peter. But then when he took his stand, when he didn't deny Christ but proclaimed Christ and got beaten for it, how did he feel? Thankful. Rejoicing. Because he was identifying with Christ and what he had suffered for him. And we should be mindful, friends, of the many Christians around us who have suffered for Christ and how they all testify to the blessings that they've experienced through it. Some of you will know the story of (coughs) John G. Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides. And one of his first nights there, the natives who were cannibals tried to kill him. He ended up spending the night hidden in a tree. And here's what he said about the experience. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages Yet I sat there among the branches, safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul. I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. You think there's a situation, oh, you would run a mile from being in that situation. But he testified to Christ drawing nearer to him than he had ever experienced before. When we suffer to any degree, and the reality is that here and now, friends, we're unlikely to suffer anything like as much as John G. Patton or many others have done. But when we suffer to any degree, rejection in the office, or the classroom, loss of a job, ostracism from family. May we see it, friends, as a gift, an opportunity to commune with our Saviour and appreciate all the more what it took for us to be saved from our sins. This world is not our home. We're not supposed to be that comfortable in it. We're not just 
British citizens or Irish citizens. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We belong to a king who has suffered and bled and died. But praise God has risen. And so may we follow him gladly. May we stand firmly together. And may we not be afraid to suffer for the sake of our wonderful saviour. And the advance of his kingdom. Amen.